Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you're all continuing to stay safe. Watching sports, definitely one of the things that so many of us are missing, which is why The Last Dance on ESPN is so popular right now. Sure, a series on Michael Jordan would be popular no matter when it aired, but we've certainly kicked that up a notch in our current state. So with that in mind, knowing how much Michael Jordan is on the brain right now, I went looking for a baseball angle, and you know that isn't hard to find, of course, since Jordan famously retired from basketball in October 1993 and gave baseball a try in the spring of 94. And he spent the entire year with the Birmingham Barons, the AA affiliate of the Chicago White Sox. The starting shortstop on that team was Glenn DeSarcina. Glenn was 24 years old, entering his fourth season of pro ball after being drafted out of UMass, born and raised in Belrica, Massachusetts, the heart of Celtics country. DeSarcina, the younger brother of then-Angels shortstop Gary DeSarcina, found himself in the middle of probably the most watched minor league season in history. Managed by Terry Francona and featuring several future major leaguers, the Barons had one main attraction, the most famous ex-basketball player on the planet. Over 25 years later, Glendy Sarcina, who made it as far as AAA in 1996, works in software sales and IT services. He also spent 12 years as the varsity baseball coach at the Groton School near his Massachusetts home. But he has plenty of memories of the summer of 1994, which he spent playing a lot of baseball, some basketball, and one very expensive game of blackjack with the great Michael Jordan. For all those stories and more, here is my conversation with the former shortstop of the Birmingham Barons, Glenn DeSarcina. Glenn, the first thing I want to ask you is, how hard is it really for people who don't understand? You played, what, seven years of pro ball? How hard is it to drop into the AA Southern League, average age is 24, this guy comes in at age 31, and he hit 202. I mean, people make fun of that, but given where he came from and how little baseball experience he had, how hard is it to do that? Oh, I think it's very difficult. I mean, I 
played baseball my whole life, high school, caught three years of college. Um, that was probably my third or fourth year in, in the minor leagues. And, and that's nonstop playing baseball and seeing, seeing pitchers and, and, and hitting and, and adjusting and doing different things. And just to, just to up and come into a league out of nowhere and not be, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, probably 15, 20 years, the last time he, he saw, you know, saw a live at bat and, you know, those guys in double in A at that time and even today are, you know, throwing, you know, at our, our day it was mid mid to low 90s and, and two or three pitches. And also you had a lot of guys that kind of the, the ball went, went all over the place. So you, right. you kind of you didn't really get too comfortable in the box. So very difficult to just step in in that type of environment. All right. So let's start from the beginning here. When did you find out that Michael Jordan was one playing baseball and two was going to be your teammate? Um, number one, I found out I had just gotten married uh, that in, in February, the early February, because I was a baseball player. We had a, you know, a, a February wedding, which sure. my wife, I'm still married today. So it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, so we, we just got married. And then, like, I think literally it broke the, a little bit before that or after that. I'm not too sure. But um, I was going to big league camp that year. That was my first big league camp, I believe. And um, we found that found that out it was crazy and um i and i remember just showing up at in sarasota and it was an absolute zoo and um i i also the one thing that really stuck out in my mind is i remember I, the first time i walked in the clubhouse um with my bag and stuff and again i'm at the time 24 years old and just a, just really a nobody to be honest with you and um walking in there and and he was literally the only one in the, in the clubhouse with some clubbies and different guys. And, um, and I don't know how he knew my name or anything, but he said, Hey, D how are you doing? Like great before he even found my locker. And I was just like, Oh my God, wow, wow. that's crazy. And, and, um, and I just thought that was pretty cool, you know? I mean, and listen, and to give people an idea, I don't think a lot would have awed you at that point. Like you said, first big league camp, but you know, your brother's a big league player at this point. You've played, you've been exposed to this a little bit. I think it would have taken, correct me if I'm wrong, it should have taken a lot to throw you off your game at that point. Yeah, definitely. Um, with Gary being a big league player, big league time. And, um, you know, I was around some big league players at that point working out and doing different things. So, I mean, but he's just a different level, obviously. Michael Jordan, you know, the best basketball player on the planet. And, I mean, not too many people are comfortable just walking in a room with him sitting there because typically you're not really too important in that uh, situation, you know? All right, so it's your first big league camp, and it's his first big league camp, obviously. Who do you think was more nervous? Who appeared to be more nervous? Um, I think... You know, from a standpoint of like not knowing what to expect, probably him. I mean, I kind of knew what was going on. I knew that, you know, I, I knew I wasn't going to break camp with the big league team. I knew where I was probably going, double A, things like that. And uh, from him, like he didn't even know if he could, you know, make the first week and not break down. I mean, you don't just walk into a big league environment and perform and, and not have your body you know, react to that. I mean, we were, like I said earlier, you know, I've been playing baseball my whole life. So you're kind of used to the movements and your hands and everything and, and different things. So I, I'd say he was probably a little bit nervous, more nervous uh, than me in that respect. As that spring goes on, are are you guys getting some attention too? Um, or is it all geared towards him? 
Um, it's, it was mostly him. We were just really just pieces to the puzzle, to be honest with you. Like he, it was everybody wanted to see him, watch him, talk to him, ask us questions about him. All, everything, everything was really revolving around him. And then, you know, to finish the, the question earlier about when we found out we were going to be playing with him, mm-hmm. that was probably towards the end of the camp. And they kind of kept that, I think probably they knew right out of the gate that where he was going, you know, from a standpoint of, you know, can, can they, the fans be serviced in his, with the stadium? You know, you don't want to put him in a small, small right. stadium. And then also we had Terry Francona, uh, Tito was going to be managing the double-A team. So I think obviously with his big league background and, and way to handle the media, he was the perfect fit. So I think we found out probably a, a week or two, really, right before we broke camp that, that, he, that we, were on, we were all going to be going to Birmingham. And um, listen, I, I know you said it was your first big league camp, but I guess the year before, Bo Jackson was with the White Sox. Did you have much interaction with him or see, you know, kind of the, uh, it was a different kind of atmosphere and circus, but did you have any experience with that the year before? Yeah, so, I mean, I, it's been it's been a while, so I don't <laughs> know the exact years, but I was in that camp with Bo um, and, and actually Carlton Fisk, who was, I, I obviously I, I grew up in Boston and Pudge yeah. was, the man here for a long time so he was like a, a legit idol for me so you know having Bo Jackson and, and Carlton Fisk riding buses with them was was unbelievable um I mean being involved in that camp as well um was crazy and in, in, in um like I said riding the buses and just seeing those guys work and obviously it was different with Bo because he was really just you know not the hundred percent and and didn't move like he could but right i mean hit, i mean still hitting the ball and the, the dude was ridiculous um and just you know pure muscle and just a different athlete you know what i mean yeah so um it was it was kind of weird having those those two camps back to back and and the and those types of athletes i mean you know those those guys don't come around too often both of those guys to be honest with you glenn what do you think was uh as the spring moves along here what do you think was harder for you guys to get comfortable around Michael or for him to get comfortable around you? I think it was him getting comfortable around us and the whole situation and the whole day to day and, you know, the, you know, the, the basics of our, um, our work, our working environment really wasn't what he was used to. So for us, it was all, you know, the same, same thing, same situation, just a different city. We went to just a different locker room, just, you know, a few different players. We all moved up kind of in with, with a core group of guys. And, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I'm going to say it was obviously a different environment with him there and the media and, and all that, but, you know, just having all the same guys was, was pretty, you know, his old hat for us. And I think for him to be thrown in the middle of 23, 24 year old guys that are just, you know, working their butts off trying to make something um, in, in the middle of, you know, uh, Birmingham, Alabama. And it, it, it was probably a little bit of a culture shock to him, I would imagine. All right. So how long did it take you, uh, born and raised in Massachusetts, to, uh, to drop the Celtics on him? No, that that didn't that didn't take long. I um we would and looking back at it now, I was kind of like, oh geez, you know, he's like I always was telling him, you know, Larry Bird was number one and all that stuff, yeah. and um he won all, you know, and um and we had another guy on our team, we, uh, Larry Thomas, who was from 
Massachusetts. So we would just, we would constantly just stick up for bird and <laughs> give him, you know, give him shit about that. But I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, I think Michael edged him out a little bit. Yeah. You, um, you talk about that 63 point playoff game and that series a, a bit with him probably. Yeah. We, we just kept saying, well, the Celtics won, <laughs> you know, they won the game and, and they won the series. And I mean, you were unbelievable, but at the end of the day, it's a, it's a team game and, and you got the L, you know? Hey, how much do you think he appreciated, you know, just good-natured ribbon like that uh, when he was on the the butt end of it? I mean, he's he's the greatest basketball player in the world. There aren't too many people who can talk to him at that level in that sport, in that arena. But when he's walking into the baseball clubhouse, you know, even though he's the most famous guy in the world at that point, you guys still have the ability to kind of jab him and bring him back down to earth. How much did he appreciate, seem to appreciate that? I think he, he loved that type of stuff and he, he went toe to toe with everybody. And he, as you know, like, um, you know, you know, seeing him play basketball and, and the trash talking and all that stuff, it's part of it. And it's like that when you're with a group of guys, 25 guys for, you know, for the whole summer and, and basically from March, April, May, June, July, August, September, you know, we're together and it's just crazy. It's like you, you, you become a little bit of a family and, it's like the big brother, little brother, and you get sick of them and all that type of stuff. So just constantly going back and forth on everything. Um, and it was all good natured type of stuff. And mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, he he had he had our back. We had his back. And I, w- I always say this to everybody. He he really just wanted to be just one of the guys and just and just kind of, you know, not have anybody talk about who he is or anything. He just wanted to get get in that clubhouse and. The best part of his day, I believe, is when like the clubhouse was just us and he could just be his own self. And, and like you said, we, we went back and forth with a lot of different type of things. And it was just he, he just wanted to be a normal guy in that clubhouse. And I think um, we we pretty much treated him like that. And it was, the, you know, obviously before, you know, social media and cell phones and all mm-hmm. that stuff. So so I couldn't imagine, you know, if, if LeBron James kind of went into the minor leagues, you know, right. today. How, how that would be it would be a totally different story to tell i believe glenn was it easy for uh, was it easy for you guys to treat him that way uh is it because he made it easy um you know how did that whole relationship really where he's just one of the guys evolve he made it that way i mean he was an he was just an awesome guy like literally a few if there was like cameras around and, and you could look back at it, I mean, he just, he just wanted to be like the average guy and, and he never ever like, you know, uh, made us feel uncomfortable about who he was and what we could do. I mean, his locker locker was open. You can go there and, and do what you want. I'd trade bats with him and, you know, we, we'd help him with his swing or T work or different things and tell him how to, you know, where is, you know, you know, like all these little things that he never, he never knew how to do. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he picked up and he relied on us for it. So, I mean, but I always tell everybody like that he was an awesome guy. He made everybody feel comfortable. I mean, there's so many different things I could talk about. I mean, one day we walk in a locker room and, and there's a pair of uh, Air Jordans, baby blues, Carolina, you know, color in everybody's locker. And, he, he knew everybody's size and, and he, he went he went to whoever it was and whether it was like the clubby kids and, and said, hey, you know, make a list, get everybody's size. And the, the kids probably just looked at our shoes and our locker and like one day, boom, there everybody had them. And it was, you know, little things like that that were, that were pretty cool that happened a lot. 
Uh, give me an example of the trash talking uh, you guys engaged in. Was it mostly during batting practice? Was it in the clubhouse? How'd that happen? Um, I would say it was all over. It was it was just in the clubhouse during like dead time. It was in the you know traveling in, in the bus on the bus doing things like that. Um, we would go out at night. Um, we had we had one of his guys, this guy George Kohler. I remember it was a really good guy. He was he was basically Michael's assistant, and he and he traveled with us really you know for security purpose for you know for Michael mm -hmm. and then. You know, he, he would set up things for us at, at, if we were out on the road and we would go to a local establishment and, and they would have it all like, you know, mm. you know cornered off for us sure. and things like that. So we spent a lot of time outside of, of the field and the, in the clubhouse together as well. So, I mean, I think I think it was really just but it was mainly probably the clubhouse where most of the ribbing went, went on because it was. I mean, you're there at two thirty for a seven o'clock game, sure. and it just after a while it gets boring, and you, you just you know you 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 just kind of chirp at each other mostly, you know. If you watched any basketball, it was easy to see his famous competitive drive. How did that come out on the baseball field? How long did it take you to see that come out on the baseball field? It, it didn't take long. I mean, honestly, spring training, you saw it. I mean, he worked with Walt, Walt Riniak was the was the uh, big league hitting coach, and mm -hmm. I mean, MJ was there the first first guy in the morning, working out, hitting in the cages off the tee with with Riniak, um, working with some of the other big league guys, um, staying late. I mean, you, you could tell right on, right right away that this was this wasn't just a joke. This wasn't just oh something happened, and he's got to he's got to take a leave of absence for a year from the NBA and. And, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf owns both and it was a perfect fit, but he he worked his butt off and, and like he never, never really like just took anything for granted. Like he wanted to get better and and he did get better. I mean, ultimately, at the you know, I always said this to people, if he got drafted at 18 baseball, went into the big, went into the minor leagues. I mean, I, I think by 22, 23, he's in the big leagues. He was that type of talent. I mean, just. Um, everybody knows what type of athlete and worker and competitor he he is and was. Um, it, it didn't matter if it was basketball or baseball in my, in my eyes. I mean, he was gonna he was gonna reach his ultimate goal. So, how were the ways he did get better? I was watching something last night where um, you know he uh, it seemed like his batting practices got better, and you could tell that there was legit power in his swing developing as the season went on. Are those the kinds of things that you uh, you saw too? Yeah, I think from a standpoint of like, you know, you take you take hitting, defense, and base running, and just the overall, you know, the IQ, the baseball IQ got better. Um, you know, hitting, just recognizing pitches. So, you know, at, at the beginning, he had no idea what was he had no idea what to expect in certain situations, certain counts. Um, he he just looked really uncomfortable. I mean, as the year unfolded, he his bat speed increased, his his just his plate awareness, his understanding of what was coming at him uh, got better. And you know, in just basically the swing plane and the swing path, and in using you know the the lower half and the upper half together, it was more of like a two piece swing early on, just kind of him throwing hands at the ball, and there was really no nothing behind it. Um, as, as far as base running, just um, understanding different situations, 
the the jumps that he got at first base, you know, even just just taking a lead, basic things um, like that. I mean, I think he stole 30, 30 yeah. bases. I mean, and that's from not even having an idea what he was doing for right. most of the time. Um, and then in defensively, I think he played mostly right field. So I would say really just angles, jumps, you know, different things on how to read balls, you know, balls come at you a different way with a right-handed hitter between, you know, as a left-handed hitter um, and, and just being able to read those types of things and, and getting better at that. Um, you, you saw him progress, you know, throughout the year. Glenn, the thing that jumps out at me when I look at his stat line, I mean, it was a 202 batting average. Uh, he walked 51 times. He came up to bat almost 500 times and he walked 51 times. Uh, against 114 strikeouts and people like to point out how much he struck out but you mm. know even in this day and age seeing a, a strikeout to walk gap like that um that's you know that's a that's a pretty decent uh percentage when you're talking about it that way especially when you look at how little he played the game and when you're talking about starting the season not even knowing how to recognize pitches i think he was second on your team in walks yeah that that speaks a lot to how he grew during the season yeah i think i think that it's a little bit of an odd stat but i would say maybe a combination of you got a 23 year old kid at the, on the mound <laughs> right, right. and he just wants to, he just wants to blow him away and he's probably not focused and doing the things he's taught to do. So he probably, you know, gets, gets behind, you know, two Oh or whatever. And, and then from there, it's obviously a better, better hitters count and you're going to get more walks there. And then, and then I think maybe just with, with the struggles he had early on, Michael, um, you know, being a little more patient at the plate, trying to get on base, trying to make things happen, trying to get, the on-base percentage up and, and getting a little more confidence and, and maybe not going up there and swinging at the first or second pitch. And then, and then, you know, from there, that's where the, the, the walks came. But yeah, that was, that was, that was a little bit of an odd stat that um, not many people would pick up on. Something you just mentioned, um, you know, how could, like, how did you notice the opponents and what they were doing? Were they, I mean, as you said, a lot of them are kids and they grew up idolizing this guy. So are they in awe or or do you see the guys who are kind of gearing up saying, I'm going to be the one that embarrasses him and strikes him out, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I know. I know that none of them wanted to be the first one to give up like his first home run, be that guy. Um, But, you know, talking to a lot because you you, you play against these guys in a lot of spring training and you get to know them. And um, they were all definitely in awe of him. They, you know, they, a bunch of them, you know, obviously get autographs from him, different things like that. But they were kind of like asking us, like, what's it like? It's got to be yeah. a circus. It's like, how do you focus? How do you worry about, you know, your game? Different things like that. And, um, you know, so from that standpoint, it was it was a, a totally different um, experience from, you know, just being a minor league kid. And in the minor leagues, you know, it's a little different where, you know, obviously you want your team to do well, you want to win, you want to win a championship, all that stuff. But, you know, guys are coming and going, moving up, moving down, and, and it's your livelihood. And you really want to focus on yourself first and foremost. And um, it, it definitely did make it a little more difficult for that because of all the stuff that came with it as far as, you know, the media attention and, and, and different things and constant, you know, you know, hey, can you get Michael? Can you get Michael? Hey, where's Michael? Do this. Can you bring this down? Things like that. So it definitely was um, a little bit, obviously, a different experience for, for the other 24 guys. What was it like talking hitting with him? 
it was he was always the one asking questions i mean he again like like he he was a sponge he he kind of wanted to to get knowledge and, and understand the game and different things from everybody so it was always him asking questions um the the hitting coach we had um was mike barnett who who ended up um you know i think he's still coaching obviously but he he's he's been coaching in the big leagues for a while mm-hmm. toronto and, and the red sox but um Barney was the type of guy that, again, would would work with him nonstop. I mean, he was he put in his hours hitting and working, and and we had a little you know area in the back with the tee and, and cage at, in Birmingham, and and Michael was always in there and always watching other guys hit, and like you know he was that type of guy that um, I think learned from a lot of people and and was always wanted to talk about hitting and different things and and how to um, you know improve his swing. I'm not going to ask you to speak for everybody on the team, but to your knowledge, were there were there anybody that, that was skeptical about this whole thing? Like you said, the whole idea from the outside world is that it was a publicity stunt. Um, he's obviously taking the spot of somebody else on that roster. Is anybody right. resentful of that fact? I think maybe the outfielders. You know, there was there was a couple guys that were that you know probably wanted to go to Double A that year and. And, you know, like you said, he took that spot. And did he earn that spot? I, I don't believe he earned that spot, but he's Michael Jordan and it is what it is. And yeah. he, he got the spot. So um, I think there was probably a couple guys that resented him being there. And, and I mean, put it this way, if he was a shortstop and I and I got bumped down to, to a ball because of him, I, I wouldn't have been happy. I wouldn't have liked Michael Jordan. I, I don't, you know, yeah. I mean, I, my, I'm stalled. I'm not going in the right direction. So guaranteed there was a couple guys that weren't too happy, but I think the majority um, of the guys, the, the, the coaching staff, the players, you know, um, wouldn't really say a bad word about him. I've seen the way he handled the autograph and picture requests from the fans and everything. Of, you know, there's a lot of video of that. What was it like amongst uh, teammates and even opposing players? Um, he he was awesome with that. I mean, it's just well, I mean, if you caught him at the wrong time, you know, he'd probably he wouldn't do it. But yeah. I honestly, I I got about you know a handful of things signed and. He signed like uh, my brother. I had my brother used to send me his bats, so they had Gary's name on it. And I thought, hey, it'd be kind of cool to give Gary, you know, one of his bats with Michael Jordan's signature. So he, he, I got that for him. I got a couple, you know, we traded bats. He wanted to use one, one of my brother's bats, so I'm like, hey, I'll give you one of the bats if you give me one of yours. And I wasn't, I wasn't stupid, you know what I mean? So that <laughs> that bats, that's bats, you know, hanging in my office as of today. So. Um, but he was awesome with that stuff and, and signing and, and like I said, um, in taking care of the guys and um, ne- never had an issue with that. Your your brother sent me the picture of that. Uh, it's uh, still a prized possession. I think you did pretty good with that gift. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> so tell me about the bus. You played in Utica, South Bend, and Sarasota. I'm guessing you were never on a bus quite like this. That's correct. Def- definitely an upgrade. Um <laughs> Um, but that being said, a lot of people made made a big to do about it. And at the end of the day, it was just a bus. It had like, you know, some more seats, a little bit more room in the back. It had like a, you know, table and lounge area type of thing. Um, so s- some different things, a little bit different design. And um, it was it was pretty cool. It was a, it was a, it was a definitely an upgrade. 
we were on on the bus rides. It, it gave us a chance to to basically to um, get together a little bit more. We he we would play cards in the back. Um, I, I I recall like our first or second bus ride. Um, and, and for the money, obviously you don't make, don't, don't make too much money. Sure. Um, and we'd get meal money. Like if we're going on a 10 day trip first day, they hand you an envelope with the cash. Like I, I think it was probably 15 or 18 bucks a day back then. Yeah. And you get a little cash in your hand. And I remember by the time we pulled up to, I think it might've been Huntsville or something. Um, I, I lo- literally lost like my whole meal money to him <laughs> on, on pl- playing blackjack in the back. And then. I was kind of like, oh, shit, you know, and I'm like, I remember I was get, kind of getting off the bus and I like looked at him I'm like, are you just going to give me that back because I got to eat? And he's just like, nope, nope. And I'm like, oh, and uh, so like I learned my lesson really quick on that one. I, I never really played cards with him again after that. Oh, wow. He was he's unforgiving there, huh? Definitely wow. a little ruthless. I mean, it, it was like he was trying to teach me a lesson, I think. So uh, I, I would imagine, though, the spreads were a little bit better than than at your other stops definitely yes he he picked those up i mean not not every night we'd have like you know really good stuff but definitely probably one night at every place he, he would definitely upgrade that um which is you know when you're in the when you're you know in the minor leagues you're eating fast food type of stuff pretty much every day um that that stuff is pretty cool and it helped out a lot uh how much basketball did you guys play I would say um, we played probably a handful of, of like pick pickup type games, um, and then back home in Birmingham there was like a, a basketball court at one of the complex where a lot of the guys stayed. Mm-hmm. There was a couple couple times there where I remember. So a couple of things with the basketball. I remember one time we were at the just the, the complex back home, and we we knew he was coming, and we were playing and. All of a sudden, like, again, this was before any type of cell phone, social media, anything. All of a sudden, like, just word spread that he was playing. And by the time, I remember it was on a little hill, little hill was off to the side. And by the time we were done, there was, there was, there was like 100 people there watching. Wow. It was crazy. And, um, and there was a couple of kids that were just local kids that got in the game. And I remember one time this kid was, he, he started talking trash and, and scored on Jordan, and then Jordan kind of was walking the ball up, talking, talking. And he just like went straight to the hoop, to, to the hoop, and like slammed it in this kid's face. Um, and then, and then like when we would go on on the road, we'd have to work out, um, you know, in the morning sometimes at local gyms. And a few times we would play um, a little pickup at the end of the at the end of the session and stuff. And I do remember one time that like I. I, I'm not dumb again. I, I picked. I, I would be always be on. Try to get on his team. And, <laughs> right. Um, it, it was. It was. It was pretty cool. He and sometimes he'd be in there like with just his like Italian loafers that were probably a few thousand dollars playing. You know, pickup <laughs> basketball with us and still probably going half speed. But it, it was obviously awesome to say that you know I got a chance to do that as well. I, I'm guessing he probably went undefeated uh, that whole summer. He wasn't going to allow anybody to, we, to beat him, right? I would say that that's probably an accurate statement. Yes, but I, I know one time we we were it was like the last point, and and I always tell my buddies this that he took a shot from like the right side, hit like the the front of the rim, hit the glass, and I kind of got the rebound and, and tapped it in for the win. And so I kind of went up to him after, and I just said, you know, don't worry about it. I get you, I get you back. You know, it was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, you you wish there were uh, cell phone cameras uh, back then, right? 
capture all that. That, that would have been awesome, yes. Definitely. Hey, there aren't many guys who go through a baseball season hitting, you know, around 200, a little under, a little over, and will admit they're having fun. Was he having fun? I think he definitely had fun. I think he relished the opportunity to just kind of almost like take it back to his childhood days of like just – I, I mean, he, you know, it all came out that he really loved baseball, uh, mm-hmm. you know, playing with some young guys, being a role model, learning, getting better, um, competing and, and seeing stuff that, you know, like, I don't know, I guess even even for him being the best basketball player on the planet, like, you know, going through the same routine all the time, I think gets a little old and, and to be able to just kind of flip it 180 and, and do something totally different. I think everybody would love to do that at some point in their lives. And for him to do that um, w- was pretty cool. And I think that he he did not by no means like not want to be there or seem like it was a force type of thing. I mean, he loved every minute of it. And I think um, it showed in, in how he got a little bit better throughout the year. He had mentioned, you know, at the start of that and in any other interviews people have seen since, you know, that his dad's favorite sport was baseball, he said. And he had lost his father the summer before, and it started that whole ball rolling of quitting basketball, moving on to baseball. Did he ever talk about his dad? It had been such a short period of time. Did that ever come? I mean, I'm sure you were, you guys were together during the one-year anniversary, too. Uh, did yeah. any of that ever come up in, in conversations with him? No, no. We never, nobody ever really talked about that. Um, I, I do recall, like, one time, it might have been the one-year anniversary. I'm not even sure when, when his father. Um, it would have been in know, August like, of '93. So you guys. Yeah. So August yeah. So it probably was the one-year anniversary. I remember, you know, pretty, pretty clearly that there was like the, the TV on in the clubhouse, and they kind of showed the, you know, the car, and they talked about it and and all that stuff. And I and I I don't believe he was around, like sitting there watching it with us. But we we all kind of just kind of stopped and were watching it. And we're like, wow, you know, it's it's a tough day for him, and mm-hmm. um, and you know, so but like other than that, it never really came up, and but you know, there was always the whispers of why he was doing it, and was it because of the father and losing his dad, and in baseball was you know the father's favorite sport, or was it you know some issue with gambling? So there was always things that came up that you just you know, again, as a as a young young player trying to focus on your own career, you kind of. You know, for me, I can't speak for everybody else, but I really just, you know, ignored that type of stuff and just kind of answered basic questions about our team and, and on-field type of stuff. You know, for uh, a guy like you and several other players in that team, never made the major leagues, so playing in front of packed houses all summer long, that must have been a pretty neat experience. Yeah, that that was definitely awesome. I mean, we we would pull up to random, you know, hole-in-the-wall type of places that – Typically, you'd get, you know, a thousand people or so, and we're pulling up at two o'clock and there's lines going around the stadium for, you know, from the ticket booths of people getting tickets for the night. And um, literally every game we played and in, in was packed. I mean, you, in, and it was funny, like on the road, it was just all about Jordan. You know, they, they there was, you know, if we were in like Jacksonville, Florida, or um, like I said, Huntsville or other places like that i mean you know they obviously came there's a core group of fans but most of those people were there to see jordan and and i always said this to people if if their if their guy was throwing a no hitter in like the seventh or eighth inning and and jordan struck out in like the seventh or eighth inning you'd see you'd see the stadium 
like just empty because people were done. <laughs> and yeah. like they, it was, was kind of weird like that, you know, like things like that happen. I'm sure the media coverage was kind of exciting in the beginning. Um, as the season wore on, did you or any of the other guys get tired of, of having that much coverage around? Definitely. Um, at the beginning, um, it was kind of cool to see a lot of the, a lot of that type of stuff. Um, and, and again, I'm not going to speak for everybody because there was probably certain people that relished that and, 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 and wanted to talk and, and did talk. But, you know, for me, I kind of, I kind of said, Hey, you know, if you want to talk to me about the game, you want to talk to me about, you know, me personally, or, you know, whatever, I'm willing to talk and, and answer questions. But if you want to talk about like what we did with Michael Jordan last night or where we're going tonight, or is he, you know, uh, this or that, I, I just, you know, I don't prefer to talk about that type of stuff, but, um, you know, we, we had people in there all the time. I mean, uh, it'd be one day, like you'd walk in and there's Ted Koppel, like in, in the <laughs> locker room. I'm yeah. like, I'm like, wow, this is kind of weird and cool. Like, um chichi rodriguez i remember one day i'm, I'm on deck in birmingham and i kind of looked down into the locker into the uh, dugout and there's chichi rodriguez sitting right next to francona and i'm like what the, what's going on here you know um and you had like um you know charles barkley and chelios and, and all those type of people constantly you know popping in and, and kind of it it was definitely cool from that that respect to meet those type of athletes, but it definitely wore on you. By the end of the year, you were kind of a little bit sick of it. I watched uh, the video of his first home run. It was on July 30th, so it's deep into the season. I was yeah. I wasn't sure if you guys were going to give him the uh, the, the silent treatment. Uh, you did. Yeah. Everybody met him uh, out of the dugout. Uh, what do you remember about that moment? I remember um, that we were all just really just so so excited for him because we all knew how hard he worked i mean it wasn't like like i said it wasn't this like just farce that was happening and, and nothing was going you know th this guy worked really hard and he became a part of the team and and um and we wanted to see him do well we wanted to wanted him to you know have success and 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 i think that just was a moment where like it just it just capped it off of like hey you know he deserved that and he you know he's able to do that and it was pretty cool to see that moment and to be part of that moment and um you know he was like a little kid man he was like a little kid i remember i don't think i wasn't on base but coming up in the dugout and we all kind of greeted him i mean he literally was was like a little kid that hit his first little league home run it was pretty cool we talked about Terry Francona a couple of times. This was pretty early in his uh, minor league managerial career. He had, you know, played, spent, oh, what, about a decade in the big leagues. His father was a big leaguer. So, I mean, he has that kind of pedigree. What about the way he handled things that year and everything we've been talking about? What impressed you about him then? Uh, perfect. I think he handled that whole year. And, again, earlier I said I think, you know, the White Sox knew – where to put him and what type of situation, what type of manager. Uh, I think Tito was just, like you said, the pedigree. He's been in a big, big league clubhouse his whole life. He understands the media, understands how to use, you know, um, handle them and, and make sure that, you know, he sat us down early on and kind of, kind of get laid up, laid the ground rules of, of what's going on and what, what we're going to be approached with and how to handle it and different things like that. I mean, there was no strict, you know, nobody talks about this or nobody talks. It was just use your heads, guys. Don't be, you know, looking for things and, and just, you know, what, what happens here stays here type of mentality. Um, and he just he handled it great. I mean, he obviously went on to to prove what type of manager and 
um, and how he can how he can you know handle a clubhouse um, with all the success he's had. Um, and I always said to people, Tito was like a was like my my baseball father. Like to everybody, he was like that. Like his door was always open. If you had a if you had an issue with playing time with your family, with a girlfriend, with a teammate. You go in there and you sit down and he's the, he's the guy you want to talk to. I mean, he was awesome like that. And um, being able to manage that uh, was a perfect fit for the team. So what you saw happen 10 years later uh, with the uh, hometown Red Sox, uh, not a total surprise to you? No, not a surprise. And I remember when he got hired, uh, there was a couple of local papers that, that called me and asked me. I mean, I just said, I, I love the guy. He's a player's manager. He is an awesome guy and um uh, i couldn't say you know a bad word about him and um and i and just seeing like i i had gone to a couple you know saw re- reached out to him we stayed in touch a little bit and you know he i brought my son at the time uh, was really young bringing him in there and into the clubhouse and all that type of stuff was pretty cool so tito was it was a guy that he didn't forget he didn't forget you know where he came from and and how hard it is to get there and um it was awesome to see him come to the Red Sox and, and win like that. The 94 season was a weird one in the majors because there was a strike. The minor leagues did get to finish their season out. What do you remember about the way that season ended and uh, kind of, um, you know, you know, breaking apart for the, uh, for the year and saying goodbye to everybody? Yeah, that was, uh, um, so again, my brother was in the big leagues. The, the strike type of thing was kind of odd. And then I, I remember that, um, Towards the end of the year, we we had a couple, maybe two or three games on ESPN that they, they oh, wow. uh, aired live, <laughs> um, which was like, you know, obviously didn't happen. It was a really big production and they would come and set up and, and all that stuff. So that I think that was kind of cool. Um, but really, the the ending of this whole summer with with Michael was was it, it just happened really quick. Like it was I remember we, we finished up in Huntsville. We weren't going to make the playoffs. And like literally the game was over. We're all kind of in front of our lockers. And he just kind of, he just kind of walked down and just shook everybody's hand, said, thank you very much. And had a great summer and, and, you know, and he was out the door and that was it. And then for me, that's the last I've ever, you know, seen him in person or heard from him or anything like that. Hmm. Were were you expecting, I mean, listen, you were the shortstop at double A for the entire season. Uh, and, you know, kind of the, the way things move up, were you, were you expecting that, you would be a triple A, maybe he would be a triple A. Were you expecting to be his teammate again as the, uh, as your career moved on? I kind of just took it like, you know, that was, that summer was unbelievable. It was a great experience. I had no, my, in my opinion, I'm like, there's no way he's coming back. He's got to go back to basketball, you know? And I'm like thinking, plus the, the whole strike thing was, was looming. And, and yeah. I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, he, he's not coming back and, um, I think he went on to play in the um, Arizona Fall League. I think Francona managed that as well. Yep. And then, and then I don't really because I was on the forty-man roster the following year. I could not report to spring training. Okay. Um, so that I kind of got a little, you know, that, for me again being a minor leaguer and needing that spring training money, which was which pretty significant, kind of stunk. And he was there in minor league camp, I believe. And then I think he he kind of bagged it maybe halfway through that or, or not or something like that. But um, yeah, I mean, it, w- it would have been, would have been awesome to, to go to AAA with him and, um, and to be able to you know spend more time with him. I think I had a, 
I think I, we that shortened spring training. And I end up having a, a shoulder surgery that following spring, and, and I pretty much missed the whole next year, anyways. So as the uh, the word starts to come out in in March of that year in ninety, I guess March of ninety five, that uh, you know he's showing up at Bulls practices and he's working out. That didn't surprise you then that he was on his way back. No, that didn't surprise me at all because I think he. He had an awesome summer. He worked hard. He kind of got it out of his system, so to speak. And I think, I mean, come on, the guy was the best player in the world at his peak, pretty much. And um, he shouldn't be playing minor league baseball. And I thought it was, I, I just thought it was, it wasn't a surprise at all that he was going to go back. So what was it like watching him go back to basketball? And I mean, he had, he got knocked out of the playoffs that year, but then he goes on to win three more championships, 96, 97, 98. What's it like watching him with the perspective you now have that you shared a summer with him? Yeah, it was definitely different. Again, I can't, uh, I'm from Boston. So I was I'm all about the Celtics, 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 Larry Bird, McHale, Parrish, all those guys. And, um, I never, ever, ever liked him. I, I, yeah. I hated him. I mean, he was so, so good. And you just didn't, you, and, uh, and then once I got to know him, it was, it was totally different, a totally different view of it. Um, I, I became a Bulls fan. I became a Michael fan, obviously. I mean, if it came down to the Celtics and the Bulls in the Eastern Conference Finals, obviously I'd be rooting for Boston. But, um, you know, all those finals that he went to after, uh, definitely rooting for him, and, and it was and it was definitely a different feeling of watching the games and and seeing him and saying you know like and just looking back at the experience I had with him that summer. Glenn, I can tell that you have so many great memories of it. But if I just ask you, what's your what's your best memory of that summer? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? The, the my first meet my first time like like I said walking into that Sarasota spring training clubhouse and having him know who I was. It just it just kind of told me a lot about him that that this that this guy did his research, knew what he was coming into, and and and, and kind of wanted to treat everybody like the way he wanted to be treated. And I think, and that first impression from from him to me was 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 really impressive. And then you know going through the whole summer and seeing how how he set the example for us. It, it, it's kind of weird because a lot of people will be like, well, he's playing baseball and you guys are the pros and he was just thrown in there. But he, he set the example on professionalism, work ethic, um, how to treat people like the clubhouse guys and different things. And, and he just set that example for us. And it was pretty easy to follow him, you know, because he's Michael Jordan. And, and again, you know, we weren't really anything significant on the map and, to have this guy there. And like I said, the first time I walk in and it was just kind of me and him and he's in a towel and he, he knows who I am. That, that, that was just a, a memory that I'll never forget. My thanks again to Glenn D. Sarcina for sharing his memories of one crazy summer, one that's hard to imagine ever being duplicated. Also, thanks to his brother Gary for helping to arrange this. Gary played 12 years in the majors before embarking on a managing and coaching career. He's been on the Mets coaching staff since 2018, and oddly enough, during that same summer that Glenn was playing alongside Michael Jordan, Gary was playing with Bo Jackson, whose baseball career ended with the Angels. Just like Jordan, Bo never played baseball after the 1994 players' strike. 
If you're new here, please check out the 30 with Murdy archive at radio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. A lot of fun conversations from the sports and entertainment worlds to check out there. And coming up next week, another look at Michael Jordan's baseball career from across the diamond. John Courtright was the first pitcher ever to face Jordan in the Southern League in 1994. His story coming up next time. In the meantime, remember to wash those hands, stay home, and heed those warnings. The more diligent we are now, the sooner we can get back to the various parts of our lives that we're missing right now. Once again, go to radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go. Subscribe, review, and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thank you for listening, and please stay safe. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.